0: Uh, So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. If you would rise with me in honor of the one who gave us this word. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 reads, "'Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body.'" So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we glorify you and thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as a body, uh, together as those called out from sin in the world, redeemed by your grace alone. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word, to sing your praises, Uh, to edify one another with those psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that we would point each other to you, uh, that we would bring each other to a place of remembrance of what you have done for us, um, and that we might glorify you in all that we do as a body. I pray for me that you would remove any distractions and hindrances, remove any nerves uh, that would cloud my words or thoughts, uh, that your spirit would speak through me the words of truth that would impact this body to your glory and that your spirit would apply your, your words to our hearts, uh, that we might glorify you not only today, but throughout this week and throughout our lives. Uh, thank you again for your redeeming grace and for the privilege of being here to worship you in your holy name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So this week's um, section, the, the, the section two or part two of the mini-series, is entitled The Bridegroom the bridegroom. Last week, we discussed submission. And so we tackled the first three verses. And if you remember, I described last week that this text, these these 11 verses, is very much like a Venn diagram. So you have three specific points that are laid out here. And then they overlap. And there's things that overlap. But overall, there's three main portions to this text, these 11 verses. And this text... Uh, It starts with submission that we talked about last week, wives submitting to your husbands. And then this week, uh, we're going to tackle the bridegroom. And we're going to see that another point of this text is Christ himself and how he relates to his church, the bridegroom relating to the bride. And so we're going to see some some overlap from last week. We're going to see some applicable things that, that wives can look to Christ for, for their own relationship we're going to see things that, that husbands, I want you to get your pens out. Um, now I want you to write down many things that we're going to talk about today because these are going to be pointed back to next week because the third topic of our Venn diagram is going to be husbands and how they are to love their wives. And so that, that ideally will be all wrapped up next week in this mini-series. Um, ideally, if I can get through it in, in, in the time next week. So uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll wrap up the three-part mini-series in that fashion. But I think one of the biggest things that we need to understand as a, as a body of Christ is our position in Christ. And you've heard me say that, those of who have been here for the majority of us going through Ephesians together since we launched. Is that in order for us to understand how we are to operate as believers, how we are to operate as a body of Christ, we have to understand our position in Christ. For if we don't understand who we are in Christ, and we don't understand that we are truly one with him, that we are united with him, that we are his bride, that the bridegroom redeemed unto himself, we will not be able to live out what God has called us to live out. So I want to make sure that we're, we're taking notes on this idea because this is the central theme for us to have successful marriages. Christ in marriage. I want the wives to think about your position in Christ. Yes, the text had us talk about submission first and how the wife's role looks, and we're going to talk about that in relation to husbands more next week and those kinds of things. But wives, out of what we learned from the text last week, look to Christ. Look to the bridegroom. Look to the the bride and the bridegroom that Paul gives us a clear example of here. Husbands, as I mentioned a moment ago, take notes on what we're talking about today because our example as husbands is none other than Christ himself. And there are things that are applicable from this text, not only from that aspect, but also from the church aspect. And that's what we're going to tackle today is us as a church looking to the one that has redeemed us. Because truly obedience to Christ stems from understanding who we are in him. And not from living a certain way so that we become His. We have to understand our position in Christ to apply His truths to our lives. So my first point this morning is going to be loving sacrifice. We're going to look at verses 25, 26, and 27, and then part of 29 and 30. So as I said, there's going to be jumping around a little bit in this mini-series because there's a lot to cover that weaves itself through these 11 verses. So, starting in verse 25, it reads, "Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her." So, the first point is loving sacrifice. And Christ did indeed sacrifice His life for the bride, the church. Now, I know the first part of this verse says, "Husbands, love your wives." Tuck that in the back uh, back of your mind, in your back pocket, because we're going to address that more next week. We're not going to leave it hanging. I promise. But I want us to focus on Christ and the church today. And so Paul very quickly shifts in the middle of verse 25 and says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church. And Paul is reiterating this idea of the love of Christ throughout his book here, throughout the entire epistle of Ephesians and all of his epistles really, But Paul's reiterating what he said in 5-2, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. He tells us to walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, if you recall, when we were going through that particular text earlier in chapter 5, this is a fulfillment of the foreshadow of the Old Testament. This is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. So Christ, uh, excuse me, Paul is explaining that Christ fulfills what the Levitical sacrificial system was laid down for. Christ is the substance. The Levitical sacrificial system was the shadow, the foreshadow, not the the real thing, but just the shadow on the ground. If you've ever walked um, through the sun, I think we all have. Um, But you know that the substance has no real, or excuse me, the shadow has no real substance. You can walk through it, thankfully, because I think we'd all be a lot more injured than we are. But the the point of of the fact is the shadow does not contain what the substance casting the shadow does. And so for us to understand the kind of sacrifice that Christ made for his bride, we need to look at what Paul specifically lays out in detail in this book. And that is Christ was an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He gave himself up for her in verse 25, our, our text today. And so when we think back to Leviticus and we think about the sacrificial system, there were regulations, there were, there were rules, there was perfection required in the sacrifice. They had to have no blemishes. They had to have no issues with their, their uh, genitalia. They had to have no limbs, nothing on their, on their wool. Nothing, nothing making them less than perfect from a visual standpoint. And so we go, okay, so if Christ is the fragrant aroma, because then these animals will be led up and they would be, be executed on the altar and they would be laid down. And God says, this is a fragrant aroma in my nostrils. And now Paul is telling us that Christ is likewise that same fragrant aroma, but it is once for all. He sacrificed himself for his bride. But the motivation is what is so beautiful here. Just as Christ also loved the church. He loved the church. Think about that. He loved the church. He loved those who were sinners when they were still sinners. He loved those whom the Father gave him before the foundations of the earth, knowing, knowing beforehand what they would do against him. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. The love of Christ for his bride is undeniable. And it is the single motivation for him coming to, or a major motivation, excuse me, for him coming to give himself on the cross was to redeem his bride to himself. John chapter 15, write that down. You can even turn there because we're going to be in John 17 just momentarily. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 gives us a depiction of the kind of love from Christ himself that he's describing here that Paul is, is using to describe the motivation for the bridegroom. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 reads, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command to you that you love one another. This love, Christ defines love for us and says that there is no greater love than someone lay down his life for his friend. It was not about Christ himself. It was about glorifying God. About glorifying, and we're going to see in just a moment, about glorifying the church herself. But this motivation that he has is that he loved the church. And please understand, I am not talking about the boyfriend Jesus mentality that is so popular in American evangelicalism. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the intimate knowing of a bridegroom and her bride, and his bride, excuse me, What I'm talking about is the intimate love that is seen in a marriage, that you truly know the one that you are marrying. It's this love that is nearly beyond comprehension. I I glorify God for giving us the institute of marriage so we can see a glimpse, just a, a small fraction of the kind of love that Christ has for his body. Because I've done some pretty messed up things. Has anyone else done some pretty sinful and messed up things? And yet we're sitting here as redeemed brides of Christ because of His love. That should that should blow each and every one of our minds. And we're going to see it's, it's not just it doesn't stop at. at at the, uh, the redemption, He's gonna, we're going to look through here and see that he sanctifies us and presents us and glorifies us, but I want us to not lose grip. Don't lose the grasp that you have on this opening thought, which is that love for the church motivates Christ to redeem his bride unto himself. Because it's not about him. It's about glorifying the Father. If you would, turn to John chapter 17 and keep your finger there. If you have a marker in your Bible, put it there because we're going to turn back and forth between John. Because Paul is describing the bridegroom's love for the bride here. And the most beautiful passage that I can think of as I was studying this week that I could think of, of of Christ describing that as well, um, is John 17 when he's praying to the Father for the disciples in the upcoming church. And so when we see that, that, this is one of the best places that we're going to... So we're going to be going back and forth and looking at that together. So let's begin in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And this is talking about his sacrifice of himself that was, that was coming very, very quickly. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So we know that, that Christ's motivation here is not only out of love, but also to glorify the Father, to glorify the church. We're going to see that in just a moment. But husbands, as I said, this is a Venn diagram, so a quick bit here. Anybody see the husbands? Are you picking up on the sacrificial, the self-denial, the putting others before yourself? Are you seeing some of that? We're going to go into that more next week, but again, I want you to start picking up on where this crosses over for our marriage and, and our lesson there. Now, before I I get too much further into John 17, there's some that would say that this was was, was not written to the church as a whole, but just to the disciples. If you look down in John chapter 17 and verse 20, because I want to establish this, because we'll be in there quite a bit. John chapter 17, verse 20 says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, referencing the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. This is a prayer for the church. Who, who heard the word of the disciples? The church. Who established the church on earth? The, church, uh, the disciples after the, the day of Pentecost. So please understand the words that we're going to study in John chapter 17 in tandem with Ephesians 5 is, is absolutely about the church as a whole. And before we move on to the, to the next verse, in, in verse 25, when we look at he gave himself up for her, I think sometimes as believers, we, we, we focus in on the death of Christ, which is absolute paramount to our faith. But do you realize, or do, do we sometimes forget, I know I do, forget to look at what else Christ gave up for us? He gave himself up for us, absolutely. But he set aside the glory of heaven. He set aside the glory of heaven to come to a ball of dirt with beings made from dirt who had the audacity to deny him. He came to a ball of dirt and put on flesh. Think about living in absolute perfection for all eternity and putting on human flesh and all that goes with it. Christ sneezed. Christ had to use the restroom. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to, 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 to be facetious. I'm, that is a dramatic thing for the God of the universe who created everything. That is, that is condescension beyond comprehension. He was tired. And the worst thing that he had to endure while he was here was dealing with sinful man. Out of all the physical ailments, being tired, walking everywhere, his feet dirty, in sandals, up and down mountains. If you've never looked at a a map of the Middle East, look at one. It wasn't a pleasant place to walk around in. Out of all the things that he had to endure, what he had to endure day in and day out was dealing with sinners. A holy God dealing with us. So he gave up Himself for his bride out of love and that's the application we need to lock into the kind of love that this tells us about we need to hone in husbands and wives both the kind of love that the bridegroom showed to his bride is unimaginable and that is what we are to strive for as a body of Christ, not only being looking to Christ, but also looking to one another. Do you show that kind of sacrificial love, not only in your family, but in your church? Because we should be. And the reason why I bring up all those extra sacrifices is to make the point for us as husbands, because I've heard this argument. I've heard this come out of a husband's mouth. Oh, Christ sacrificed his life for his wife, I'm absolutely willing to do that if someone breaks into my house. And yet, nothing else. That's where the sacrifice stops, right? How, how, many, how many men have lived like, I have lived like that, to my shame. This is not talking about husbands simply sacrificing your life if and when the opportunity presents itself. Because we, li- we do live thankfully, in America, and and we don't have a lot of that to worry about. But husbands, you are to sacrifice a lot more, or be willing to sacrifice a lot more than simply your life. Because, frankly, that comes pretty easy. Men have a natural desire to protect, right? We have a natural instinct to protect. We don't have a natural instinct to wash the dishes. I'm just giving an example, okay? We, we don't have a natural instinct to, to what, whatever the case may be, okay? I'm not going to give too many specifics here. But do you see what I'm saying? Husbands, this does not mean wait until someone robs your house and jump in front of your wife and catch the bullet. This means a daily sacrifice, every day, day in, and day out, to put your wife first. And we'll, we'll get into that more next week. Secondly, verse 26 Point number two, a loving sanctification. Loving sanctification. So we've looked at a loving sacrifice. Now we're looking at a loving sanctification. Verse 26, back in Ephesians. Keep your finger in John 17, because we'll be back there. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Church, you are sanctified. But you might go, no, nope. I send on my way to church this morning. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that the sacrifice of Christ set you apart from your sins, set you apart from judgment, that you are considered now holy before God that you are considered now blameless before God. These are not my words. This is what Paul's using. We're going to see it here in just a minute. That we are sanctified and set apart as holy, looked upon as if we had the righteousness of Christ ourselves. We are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. So what that means is we go from having a negative balance in our bank account way down here. So we have a bank account and we have tons of debits. We've overdrafted our account. And Christ's sacrifice not only brings us back to a zero balance, so he took the wrath of our sins, the wrath of God for our sins, and brought us back to a zero balance. But not only did it bring us back to a zero balance, the active obedience of Christ, him living perfectly according to the law the entire time he was here, then gets credited to our account, so we are now righteous before a holy God. So he brings us not only from a negative to a zero, but zero isn't good enough for a holy God, is it? Zero isn't good enough. You have to actively obey his law to be considered righteous before a holy God. And so the bridegroom redeems his bride in such a manner that he is considered worthy for the bridegroom. Titus 2, verses 13 and 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. He redeemed a people for his own possession after giving himself up. Just let that sink in a minute. We are sanctified and set apart. The bridegroom redeemed the bride unto himself. I I, want to paint you a, a, a mental image here. Because in the second half of verse 26, it says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. John 17, if you've still got your finger there. Jesus even says and asks the Father, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they themselves also might be sanctified in truth. Do you see all the reference to sanctification? And so the mental image I want you to think about is this. The bride is filthy. The church is filthy in and of itself. Correct? We would all agree with that. A filthy bride. So I want you to think of a field. Picture in your mind a field for me. And out in the middle of this field is a wagon full of rocks, the, the heaviest burden you can imagine for a single animal to, to carry, to pull by itself. And the field is, is overgrown. It's, 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 a, it's just not a good environment. And the farmer who needs this work done sees attached to this wagon the most disgusting, despicable excuse for an animal of burden you've ever seen. It's dirty. It's crusted over with its own filth. It's got flies around it. It's humped, the, the, it's humped over in the, in the um, yoke so much that it's, 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 it's almost like the wagon's holding it up. And it's, it just, just picture the most pitiful excuse for an animal you ever can imagine. And all the farmer asks him to do is get this load across the field. Just, just move it over. And this animal is incapable. Absolutely incapable. And yet the farmer walks out. And you see him see this this animal and you see this look of love on his face, and despite how destitute it looks, despite how despicable it looks, he unhooks the yoke. And seemingly with with love like you couldn't imagine, he puts the yoke on his own shoulders and begins to pull against the burden that this animal was set to carry. But not only does he pull the burden, he scoops this nasty, disgusting animal, this beast of burden up in his arms and whispers that he loves it and continues to carry the burden that this animal could not carry across the rest of the field to where it could receive nourishment and water and be cleansed. Do you get the image that I'm striving for? Because we are that beast of burden. The bride is that despicable compared to the bridegroom. His church cannot carry the burden that it has brought upon itself. And yet the bridegroom will pull the burden for the bride. And not only pull that burden, but sanctify her and make her white so that she is able to be honored at the wedding feast. And this is done by the washing of the water and the word. And this mental image of washing comes up and you think, well, does water fix everything? Does that mean baptism saves? No, that's not what that means. This is a word picture that Paul is trying to use because in Jewish wedding ceremonies, the bride would cleanse herself of water before the wedding ceremony so that she would be as clean as possible. And the baptism is that symbolage that we have of the sins being washed away. There's not a physical cleansing, as though it's required for salvation, but it is absolutely a picture of the washing of the bride. It is absolutely a picture of us joining with the bridegroom in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so with this water and with this word, and notice it's lowercase word, he truly means, Paul truly means, It is the Word of God, the breathed out, inerrant Word of God that the Spirit uses to transform the hearts and minds of the bride. I want you to think about the impact that that has on us, that we are sanctified, that we are set apart, because in applying that to our lives, we need to know our position in the bridegroom and know what he sacrificed to bring us there. Because that's where the motivation for living out what he's asking us to do begins. If you think about yourself in light of that animal pulling that burden, just that simple image, it should conjure up, there's nothing I could do to earn this. There's nothing, there's nothing I can do on my own. And then that is the motivation, the seed of motivation that God uses to go, now obey me. the power of the Spirit living out within us. Because when Christ said, it is finished, that was it. We were sanctified. He took the penalty. He cleansed us. He washed us up. And we can think about the timeline and, and God is transcendent, But please understand, when Christ said it is finished, there was nothing more needed for those who are his. He did that work of purification. That's the motivation for how we live. Number three, loving presentation. Point number three, loving presentation. Verse 27 says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So the goal of the washing in verse 26 is so that he might present her to himself the bridegroom, and looking for a bride. And this would be very different than what culturally Paul, uh, the Jews, and and those in the culture would would think of how marriage normally works. Generally speaking, a bridegroom would pick a bride and then tell his father. The father would then go speak to the bride's father. They would work out a cost, a redemptive cost. The, 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 The bridegroom himself really didn't do a whole lot Except show up for the ceremony. So, this is counter to the culture. Paul is saying the bridegroom himself redeemed the bride that he loved so that he could present her to himself. Basically, in in, in our idea, he rescued a prisoner that was against him for himself, making her acceptable for the wedding feast. So ultimately what we have to understand is Christ brings his bride to the point of purity so that she can walk down the aisle. And In in our cultural mind, we think of walking down the aisle. That she could walk down the aisle proud to come to the bridegroom. That she was eligible to come to the bridegroom. That she becomes worthy to walk the aisle to the bridegroom. Because ultimately... Christ presents us to himself as glorious, as glorious. Had you considered yourself glorious lately? Church, have you considered yourself glorious lately? I know I haven't. I don't consider any of this glorious, except for maybe my beard. No, I'm just kidding. But think about that, church. We are glorious. Paul is calling us glorious. The bridegroom redeemed the bride and made her glorious. Brides, if you walk down the aisle, did you feel glorious on your wedding day? I'm sure you did, radiant, right? That's just a fraction of what this means because Christ imputed his righteousness, his glory on his bride so that he could then present her to himself and bring her in to a loving union with him. In verse, uh, John chapter 17, you still got your finger there, John chapter 17, we're going to read verses 22 and 23. John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, it says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perf- perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Look at the first part of that. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one that glory unites us as a church into his bride. The glory that Christ is talking about is what was bestowed upon him by the Father, and he in turn gives us that, drawing us to himself, purifying us, sanctifying us out of a motivation of love, that we are as glorious as Christ is. I'm not exaggerating. I want you to understand your position in Christ. You share his very glory, church. That's not me making this up. That's what the text says. In the eyes of the Father, we share the very glory of Christ himself so that we can be seen as holy and blameless. No spot or wrinkle on our dress here. We are no longer the dirty animal who cannot pull the wagon. We are seen as glorious. He made us worthy to be his bride. I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but I want us to understand what this truly means because the Christian church in America today has lost sight of who she is. We have lost sight of what being the bride of Christ truly means because if we hadn't lost sight we wouldn't be in the shape that we're in. So we are called saints because we are already holy and blameless with Christ's righteousness. The application here is for us to think about that position as often as we can. Point each other to it, remind each other of it, Remind how glorious, remind the church, edify one another with how glorious we are because of Christ. We have no glory in and of ourselves, but because Christ loves his bride, he has given that to us. And we are to be united around that. My last point this morning loving nourishment. So we're going to look at verses 29 and 30 in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul switches back in verse 28, talking about husbands for just a moment. And then in verse 29, he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So in verse 28, Paul says that husbands are to love their own wives as their own bodies. In verse 29, Paul changes the language to flesh. No one has ever hated his own flesh. He's setting himself up for verse 31 when he quotes Genesis that we'll go over more next week. But I want you to see no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Those are some phenomenally impactful words because so far what we've talked about is the wedding feast. We've talked about the love of Christ, the sanctification of the church, preparing for the wedding day. But the words here for nourish and cherish is present tense, is continuing. It continues to go. It wasn't a one-time thing. This isn't about the wedding feast. This is about the bridegroom's sustainment of the bride for all eternity. Christ nourished the body by giving them Himself. John chapter seventeen verses six through eight. John chapter seventeen verses six through eight. It reads, "I have manifested your name to the men whom you, have ge- who you, whom you gave me. Excuse me, out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you." for the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. So we see a combination of Christ explaining this idea of nourishment. He manifested the name of God to the men whom God had given him the disciples and we already know that in verse 20 of 17 as I established earlier this is speaking about the church at large. But Christ gave himself to those men. He taught them the things of God. He taught them the words of God so that they might be nourished and they might understand who he is. Christ's nourishment is the gift of this right here through the power of the Spirit. The Word of God is the nourishment that we have by his good grace through the working of the Spirit for us to be nourished and look to him and live as he has called us to live, to understand the sacrifices that he made for us, to understand his work in human history to bring about the redemption of his body. Do you see all this playing together now? That the nourishment that we have been given by the bridegroom is to sustain us, to draw us to him, to point us to the glory of the Father. The bridegroom did not leave the bride after the marriage feast, he nourishes her. But Christ also cherishes the body. This idea of cherish is to love, to, to adore, to to lovingly take care of. Nourish, you think of food, nourish, you think of physical being able to do things. Cherish is just to love. Have you ever cherished someone, possibly your children, your spouse? You like to flower them with gifts and love them and, and just cherish them and just be with them. And, and Did you know that the bridegroom, Christ, cherishes his church? He guards them, he provides for them. John 17, 12, still praying to God, he says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Christ cherished the disciples and in turn cherishes his church. He protects them. He loves them. He provides for them. It's a beautiful thing to see what the bridegroom has done for his bride. And the final thought here, and I've said it several times because it's a running theme we are also, verse 30, members of his body. We are united as one flesh. The image that God gave us of marriage is that the two would become one flesh in Genesis. And this isn't just sexually. I, I, don't, I don't want to get explicit or, or anything like that. This is the idea of two becoming one, husband and wife becoming one unit, one body, completing one another, being the helpmeet that they are called to be. And that same imagery that we think of is the idea of the bridegroom uniting the bride, the church and Christ being united as one. That we are in Christ and Christ is in us. That we are one. That we are accounted before God, before a holy and perfect God accounted equal to Christ's righteousness and holiness. We are blameless. Not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Christ did. and we even saw this in Ephesians in our first sermon together Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we we'll would be holy and blameless before him in love every spiritual blessing And unless you think this is simply Ephesians only, Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, also written by Paul, he echoes this same idea. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And I could preach a whole sermon on that, but we're going to leave that alone. Christ lives in us, church. We are here because the bridegroom redeemed us unto himself. The idea of being unified with Christ is not an exaggeration. It's the plain truth of redemption. Again, the church has lost sight as a whole of our position in Christ. That is the motivation for everything we are as believers, for everything we are as a church. We are united with Christ. And I'll address husbands next week, so there's some things in there. I'm I'm hoping you guys wrote down men uh, that would impact you from that perspective. But I want us to focus on Christ because the application that we have to have from today's entire sermon, today's entire sermon can be narrowed down to this point. Our position in him brings about obedience. Our position in him brings about obedience because if we don't understand who we are in Christ, we will never live as though we are in Christ, do you, do you follow? If you don't understand that you're united with Christ and that you are, He lives in you, as Paul says in the Galatians. How you live out, how He's asking you to live out, because when you are are truly understanding what Christ has done, it brings you to a place of glorifying and worshiping Him. And when you glorify and worship Him, you turn to thankfulness for what He has done for you because it was something you could never do for yourself. You were never going to get that wagon out of the field. I don't care how hard you pull. I don't care how long you stand there in the sun. It will never happen. And yet the farmer came and did it as Christ did for you. And in thankfulness, you go, now I want to please you because you're the only thing that matters to me. In life because of what you've done. Does obedience sound somewhat more likely from that position than it does? Oh, I have to live this certain way so that Christ loves me. Or I have to live this certain way so that God doesn't strike me with a lightning bolt. Yes, we need to be holy. Please understand. There are disciplines for sins. Please understand. Hebrews is very clear about that. But you do not earn your position in Christ because of how you live. You live righteously because of your position in Christ. There's a wild difference between the two. So as I prepare to conclude, this passage is overflowing with the worship of Christ. And I want you to be meditating on that as we sing our last song together. I hope that the the sacrifice of the bridegroom for his bride, the love that he shows and what he did, I pray that you revel in that for your Savior. Revel in that. Let it bring you to a place of doxology that you've never arrived at before. Let it bring you to a place of understanding that the communion table, the Lord's table, like it never has before, because that is a semblance, that is a resemblance, a reminder of the sacrifice that the bridegroom made for us. It should impact everything that we are and everything that we do as followers of him. And next week, husbands, we're going to look at what it means to love our wives in that same fashion. It's a tall order. And we're going to tackle it together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word today. But more than even just that privilege, Lord, I thank you for the sacrifice that you have made for your church. You as the bridegroom have redeemed a filthy bride unto yourself. You have purified her. You have blotted out the spots. You have straightened out the wrinkles. You have made her glorious by your good grace. And you presented her to yourself, and we thank you for that. For there is nothing redeeming within ourselves. There's nothing we could do to move that wagon. We thank you for your grace that has been poured out through the work of the bridegroom. And I pray that this impacts every single one of us today and through the rest of the week and on to as long as we are a body, Lord, that we would point each other to that and glorify you in all that we are and all that we do. In your holy name I pray, amen.